welcome to Public Square, Conversations in Democracy, where we explore the heart of democracy. I'm your host, Witte van Renswijk, on a mission to reboot the public sector and invigorate local democracies worldwide. Join us as we spotlight game changers, share visions and practical innovations. Let's begin today's inspiring conversation. Today we're traveling to a coastal city where the weather is undoubtedly much better than here in wintry Brussels. We're traveling to the Southern Hemisphere and we're going to the city of Vigna del Mar in Chile to meet Nicole Marquick. She is the methodological team lead at the city of Vigna del Mar. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Wita. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation because we're going to be talking about citizen engagement in a very different context than you know, like the context that we're mostly talking about on this podcast, the European context, the American context. Um, so I'm very eager to learn a bit more about the Latin American context and what it means to engage residents in a country that has, I would say, a more probably complicated political history that still can be felt today. So um, all that good stuff, we're going to explore that. But maybe let's start with something lighter to kick off. First of all, so Nicole, you are a Canadian living in Chile, right? What is what, What's your story? Yeah, well, I, I'm coming up to, I guess, about a six-year anniversary in, in Chile. Um, I came here traveling and in one of the sort of stories of life, the unexpected moments of life, um, I ended up staying and staying a little bit longer and staying a little bit longer. So uh, it's now the place that I call home. Um, okay, I, I would like to kick off this conversation today by going back in time. Um, and I would like to ask you, what is... Um, for you in your memory, what is your most powerful memory of democracy? Mm, yeah, um, you know, I, I think that's a hard one to pick, but uh, the thing that sort of jumps to mind for me, um, if you can imagine, you know, when church bells are ringing in a city and you sort of get these sounds, especially when at the same time and you get some bells that you can hear from further away and then bells that are closer and it's sort of this sound that really draws you into the city. Um, in something similar, I think of something called a casarolazo, uh, which is when when people go out onto the streets with uh, with pans, pots and pans, and banging the pots and pans together. Ta 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 ta. And this is a particular a particular type of uh, sort of form of, of peaceful protest, rather musical too. Um, and it brings to mind a space like this where um, it brings me back to two thousand and nineteen. I think we'll probably go into this kind of a context in, in a little bit more depth in a minute, but 2019 uh, in protests in Chile. Um, and I remember these moments of the casarolazos and, and so you would hear it starting from somewhere, you know, over the, a few streets over um, and people, different neighbors would slowly pick it up and, and then you'd end up on your balcony, uh, sort of hitting the pots and pans with people around and so it, it brings to mind that sound and, and the sort of sense of community that that, that brings to mind for me and people declaring a need for change together. Yeah. Right. This, Cause that's what I, I mean, it's, it's not something that I've ever participated in, but I can totally imagine how you can feel kind of a sense of collectiveness with, with, you know, like dance and music and, and how this can even strengthen that, that feeling of community. Um, all right. Wonderful example did you participate in in some of those protests back then in 2019 yeah, uh, out on the streets in a couple of moments yeah well um you've just set the stage i think for this conversation um 
because, you know, like we were going to talk about obviously participation in Vigna del Mar, and I would love to to really you know know a little more about your work and some of the projects that you're doing. But I do think it's for um, for both me and for the listeners really important to first understand a little more about you know the history of Chile um, because it still influences how you engage with the community today, right? So could you tell us a bit more about um, this history and also how it influences the mindset of Chileans when it comes to government and participation today? I guess the first thing that's important to, to say is obviously, you know, this is my view of a, of a Canadian uh, in Chile for a period of time, but uh, I'm sure some folks would agree with the way that I'm about to explain this and, and some folks would perhaps have a, a different view, obviously, but... Um, mm -hmm. You know, Chile, like many South American countries, has has a tumultuous history uh, in in recent decades. Um, one of its sort of most well known uh, events or periods of time, I guess, has to do with the dictatorship of, of uh, Agustin Pinochet, uh, who came into power uh, through a military coup in in 1973, um, and that was following a period of of quite a lot of hope, I would say, for at least a segment, uh, you know, a political segment of the population where um, the government of Salvador Allende had come in with much more so socialist uh, mm -hmm. views and, and policies that wasn't a particularly popular uh, political administration for folks like the United States of America. And so in that period of time, you know, we know globally that uh, a lot of countries had quite a lot of intervention, um, foreign intervention for more socialist leaning governments, and Chile is no exception in that in that uh, in that sense. So Salvador Allende came into power. Unfortunately, um, a short amount of time later, in 1973, you know Chile experienced a military coup, and and Pinochet came into power uh, through force, and that was a regime that that lasted for quite a period of time until 1990. Um, and that was a, an administration argument, uh, obviously, that uh, was characterized by a large number of people that disappeared, were disappeared, um, who, you know, tortured, killed. Um, it was certainly a period of time in which political affiliations and expressing uh, political views of a, of a certain type was uh, a dangerous thing to do. Um, and people suffered as a result of that. And so... Um, it's a period of time in Chile's history that's characterized by control, uh, quite a heavy hand, obviously, and um, and is a, a a period that shapes to even today, obviously, the political and social context of the country. Yeah, how does that live on today? Well, I mean, so Pinochet, his his regime ended up in or ended in 1990 after a plebiscite, a national plebiscite, which I think is a pretty impressive. Uh, sort of turned of events, as it were, um, and and people voted against the continuation uh, of that administration, of that government, um, and that ushered in the return to democracy uh, in the 90s. But, uh, you know, the governments were still very much uh, in the hands of a small group of people, uh, a certain number of families and well-known uh, last names, uh, you know, found themselves in power and continue to largely find themselves in power over this the sort of more recent history. And so that creates a situation where socially, culturally, um, you know, politics has this weight to it. It has this history and legacy uh, of, in talking about politics and things that are seen as, as political. Um, and I think that that really shapes uh, the sort of the immediate conversations around things that are political, democracy and that type of thing, and how we want to run our cities and our, our 
uh, our towns. Um, but also socially, obviously, that has, and economically, that has really big impacts in terms of uh, the way the country is run. Uh, during that period of time, there was quite a strong installation of a of a heavy neoliberal model, capitalist model. And so, you know, you had folks like the Chicago Boys who are well known in terms of installing this economic model that obviously it's not just how we buy, it's how we live. Um, and so what you see is that uh, that brings in a heavy uh, sort of focus on materialism that didn't that wasn't the case, you know, a couple of decades before. Um, it ushers in uh a heavily sort of market uh, focused approach where uh, most things are prioritized. So there's one of the few countries in the world where uh, water, for example, is something that you can buy. Um, and that is, that's pretty, that's a pretty big um, factor in the way that people have access to the basic resources that we need to literally exist. Um, and so there's a lot of privatization, there's a lot of kind of free market regulation and not a huge amount of focus on uh, the kind of uh, services and, and supports that you might find in other countries that have a bit more of a socialist legacy to them. And do you feel that a bifurcation still lives on today, as in that bifurcation of specifically, you know, you talked about the plebiscites. Um, I remember seeing, by the way, this, this film called uh, No by, I think, Pablo Lorraine, like about this campaign, this, what was it, a 60-second campaign? They got 60 seconds to, you know, like to promote why they should vote no in the referendum. Um, I don't know if you've seen that film or you probably know the history, but um, I find it pretty, pretty fascinating. They only had like 60 seconds, if I remember well, like 60 seconds, but they had to say it all in those 60 seconds. Um, but um, anyways, what I wanted to get back to is the... Um, the yeah the dividedness in the society today is it still something that you can feel because you had I mean two very different political regimes right with, with Allende was very much leftist socialist more inward right and then you had um, the right wing under under Pinochet um, the neoliberalism that you just talked about is that something that still lives on today that there is such a there's a divided society and there's less of a of a center taking shape. More than political division, I think the thing that at least I, I notice more uh, has to do with um, socioeconomic inequality. Uh, you know, Chile is one of the of the OCD countries. It's one of the countries that has the highest level of, of income inequality. And so you have a huge majority of the population that, uh, or sorry, a huge percentage of the population that has, you know, a very humble uh, monthly income. And then you have extravagant wealth on the other end of the spectrum, where, you know, a huge concentration of the resources of the country in, in the hands of, of very few. Um, and so unfortunately, that creates a context where the realities of different segments of, of society are drastically different, you know, and, and the sort of the middle class um, isn't as strongly represented. You have a lot of folks who are living very much, you know, the, the last sort of pesos of the month to get by at the end of the month, and other people who they're not thinking about that <laughs> yeah we're going to talk about like that impact of those inequalities and how you engage your community but um just building on what we're just talking about um the constitution that's also a big part right like the the constitution and the recent reforms in the constitution um could you tell us a bit more about those events like why was the constitution in the first place why did it get or are because it's still in the process, right? Why was there a need to rewrite it? And and what's been the different steps so far to, to rewrite it? 
Well, the, the sort of baseline context, you know, is, is born out of what we were just talking about, which is that during the the Pinochet re uh, regime, um, the the currently active constitution of the country was written, and so it was written in a context, in a very specific context, right? Um, that is the the constitution that, as I said, is is still active, or is still uh, relevant today. And when I was mentioning the the casarolazo, the the banging of the pots and pans, um, you know that happened in 2019, and what we saw in that year um, was a sort of explosion of protests that had been and have for many years been um, present in, in Chilean society, particularly the sort of student protest movement. Um, every few years, it's had you know quite impactful moments to try and push the envelope a little bit in in society. But for whatever reason, in 2019, uh, sort of student protests came together a bit with um, another raise in the cost of transit, um, particularly in, in Santiago, which is the capital city of this country, where about four, over 40% of people live. Um, and the, the metro system raised the price a few more pesos, uh, but it's already quite high, considering what I mentioned earlier, that you know, the cost of, of living for people and the income levels for a lot of people. And it pushed a button, um, and it started off. I remember the, the um, I remember this day being a Friday, uh, and it started off. You know, we had heard of been hearing that week about the different student protests, and in particular, sort of jumping the turnstiles uh, at the metro station as a form of protest. And in, on that Friday, I'm getting shivers thinking about it a little bit. <laughs> on that Friday. Um, in the evening, as it was sort of coming to the end of the workday, there were sort of wider spread protests that started happening. And then it just sort of lit. <laughs> uh, and through the evening, we started to see uh, very widespread protests. The metro system was shut down. So there was quite a, a high degree of, of kind of interruption of normal life in, in the city, people having to walk home from work uh, for long distances and things like that. Um, and then, you know, so the things that are a little that often come with sort of wide scale protests, um, the, the burning of some metro stations and things like that. And so it really took hold very quickly, it escalated really quickly. And that marked the beginning of a period of protests um, that went until the pandemic, right? Um, where what you saw was a really widespread movement that didn't have a head in particular, not a particular you know, figurehead or, or, or face to the movement. Um, and the demands were also quite widespread. They, they pointed to different elements of the inequality and the lack of, of sort of supports in this society, uh, education, uh, healthcare access, um, the, the healthcare, um, or sorry, health uh, insurance systems in this country, the retirement, uh, uh, systems as well, which are pretty poor, unfortunately. Um, things, all sorts of different elements of the way that we live and the way that we sometimes suffer as well and don't have the supports that we're looking for. And so there was this really quite wide uh, series of demands that started to coalesce into a, the, the call for a new constitution. Because at the end of the day, when we try and move forward new laws, a constitution can be uh, the thing that lets continue, you know, opens the door and, and ushers in that change or can be the barrier to that change. And so what about the, the constitution then? There have been, I remember well, so there was a plebiscite, then there have been two attempts already to go through like a participatory process, right? 
Yeah, well, and this is that's the, the first part is the prettiest part, right? The most sort of uh, hopeful <laughs> part, and then we get into the messiness of of what social change really looks like. Uh, yeah, in in October twenty twenty was when we had the first plebiscite, and and there were, at that point in time there was quite wide scale um, support for the idea of rewriting a new constitution. You had eighty about eighty percent of the country uh, voted to to write a, a new constitution, and about eighty percent of the country that selected that the way that they wanted to do that was through. Um, a constitutional assembly of citizens, uh, a group of citizens to rewrite the constitution. So this was sort of the high point, I would say, uh, when hope and and openness would have been sort of at the highest points. And then we then we opened up a period of about a year uh, where that assembly of 154, I think it was, uh, citizens came together to write this new uh, new document. Um, which is not a small task <laughs> by any means. And they had quite a, sh a short period of time. I mean, this is a, a monstrous document that has to have quite a lot of, of, sort of legal basis and all that kind of stuff. But they did it. And I should mention that those 154 people were democratically elected by the citizenry in this moment of, of hope. And that's, that's a, an important point because I think what we saw happen is that when the elections for the assembly occurred, uh, number one, the sort of zeitgeist of, of society at that point was quite liberal, was sort of left-leaning, right, was quite open. Um, and also it was with uh, optional voting, right? You didn't have to vote at that, at, in that entry point. Then we had the year process of rewriting the constitution, and that constitution went to another plebiscite. You said 153 people were democratically elected? As in, people went to vote for local candidates. Yeah, we've had a lot of voting lately. It's a citizen assembly, but the members of the assembly got chosen in a democratic, in a direct way, right by the constituents. Yep. So those people were, I mean, community members like you and, and I, but not politicians per se, right? Mm -hmm. That were up for, or they could run a campaign, I guess, and and then voted into the assembly. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a, it's a huge experiment yeah. in, in democracy for sure. Do you know how many candidates roughly there, there were? Great question. I, I couldn't tell you the number exactly, but uh, there were definitely, there was a pretty solid pool of people. I wonder about like the dynamics of, you know, like a traditional political campaign versus me as a citizen running my, you know, my campaign, doing my mobilization and, and it must be very different dynamics, I imagine. I think there are some similarities in the sense that at the end of the day, uh, the success of your campaign is largely linked to how much you can get the word out about your your platform and your personality, right? Um, and so that part, I think, is is consistent for sure. Um, the part that was quite interesting and, and different, I would say, in, in comparison to so your traditional political uh, campaigns and, and uh, voting processes is that the values, what people valued were, was... Uh, was a bit different, right? I mean, I remember one of one of the popular candidates, for example, uh, is nicknamed Tia Pikachu, Auntie Pikachu, um, and she sort of, you know, in, in quotes, rose to fame, as it were, uh, because she came out to the protests very frequently in a Pikachu costume, <laughs> you know, and so people would sort of see her and, and generated that recognition amongst folks who were also out in the streets protesting which was, at, you know, at different points in time was, was a huge popular or a portion of, of Santiago in particular, but also various different cities. 
Uh, and so that, diff- you know, the recognition comes from different uh, sort of sources, maybe than traditional political uh, candidates. But, you know, you still need to be able to get the word out. All right. So bring us back to that moment. So then you had that assembly of 153 people. 154, I think it was. Well, and they, they worked, te- you know, <laughs> quite... Uh, quite tediously and uh, detail-oriented for, for about a, a year's um, work, right? And then that brought us to another vote. <laughs> we went back to the voting polls. Well, I didn't, uh, but most Chileans did. Uh, and it was the exit plebiscite. And now there's there's a couple of things that are interesting here. One is the media presence and the sort of coverage of the work of the, uh, of the assembly over that year period. I think if you track the tone of coverage over time, um, it certainly went from more positive to more negative. Um, a lot more focus on the particular sort of, uh, you know, quirks, shortcomings, errors of particular members of the assembly that started to kind of, you know, create a bit of a bad name um, for certain members of the group. We're obviously the minority, but, you know, it, it really sells in the media. You started to see that kind of media coverage uh, and, and criticism shift pretty heavily, I would say. As in criticism on like the individual members, like them becoming public figures and backstories that came yeah, out. Exactly. You know, the, the sort of the sort of the lies that a few people told. And, and so that becomes quite, uh, you know, that sells and then ends up being quite a lot of coverage around those kinds of topics. So that was one one thing. Um, the other thing is that the the structure of the plebiscite changed, and this is a huge point because it went from voluntary voting to obligatory voting. And so for the first time in, in many years, we didn't know what to expect because all the sort of previous voting patterns and tendencies of the last, you know, 10, 20 years or whatever, um, were from pe- the people who chose to go out to vote not the people who were required to go to vote as a country. Um, that's a, a pretty big factor in terms of the change. And I would say the third factor that I would highlight uh, personally is that Chile as a country, as, as all countries, you know, has a particular time and place that it's in. Um, and the values that we have as societies and cultures, um, the things that we are familiar with. And the, pr- the proposed constitution was quite a jump from that, you know, we moved from from a society where, uh, you know, there is, uh, there's not a huge amount of sort of formal recognition, for example, of uh, of indigenous groups. What we saw here was that, uh, as as an example, you know, as a society today, uh, there's not a huge amount of formal uh, recognition or self government that's happening for indigenous communities in this country. And as an example, the proposed uh, constitution went a number of steps uh, into uh, into self-governance models and things like that. And so I think one of the factors that, that occurred was that the folks who were selected at a particular moment in time, democratically elected, yes, but not super representative necessarily of the sort of overall sample of Chilean society and, and where we are as a country and a, and a community. And so the proposed constitution started to also create a lot of concerns because it was quite a step away from where we are now. So, of course, that creates a lot of uncertainty, that it creates a lot of questions about how does this, you know, what's this going to look like in the implementation? What is that process of implementation going to look like? And what's that going to generate for us uh, in terms of 
chaos, well-being, economic stability, etc. So you said like to a point of like the policies were that progressive that sometimes they were not representative for like the whole society. Um, so I guess minority groups were, I imagine, overly represented. Was there any mechanism for the, like the composition of the the assembly to make sure that there was like yeah representativeness there there were some really beautiful things uh the the assembly itself uh had to have gender parity um there were reserved seats for the different indigenous indigenous populations of of chile um and so in that sense there were there were some really important mechanisms i think around representation that were in play uh, for the citizens assembly that i think worked to their favor the thing that i think was pot pot uh, potentially a difficulty in the long run um, was more the political spectrum, right? And and the sort of social values that are enshrined in, in those particular views. And so as a group, it, it leaned much further left, the assembly, than the overall kind of uh, composition of views of the, of the country at that point in time. They got a no. They didn't get acceptance of their proposed constitution. Exactly. With about 60% of, of the vote, it was turned down. 60%. All right. So that was that was last year, right? 20? That was in September of 2022. Yes. So what's happening now? So that was the part of the process that definitely had the most uh, kind of coverage and, and I would say sort of wide scale acceptance um, in an attempt to uh, to try and keep this process alive at the, the government, the current national government still led a process to try and create a second version. But uh, it wasn't based on a you know a citizen assembly. Very different sort of mechanisms there, um, and I would say it's it's pretty heavily suffering from a lack of uh, of, of validity uh, at a widespread level. So we will have another voting process <laughs> coming up in in December of this year in a few weeks. Um, at this point in time, I would be surprised if it passes. Maybe we'll see. We'll have to see if this uh, records well. <laughs> You feel because you're also like jokingly saying like we have yet another vote. Do you feel that there is already a bit of a, like a democracy fatigue that people because on the one hand you have still that that vote. So again, I guess there will be that voting obligation, right? But do you feel like the energy of of the whole movement, the initial movement, is that still there or? Has this kind of faded out? I would say the pandemic sucked quite a lot of that energy out of it. Um, and that, that combination yeah. of, well, you, you know, when people become disappointed, they had high, people had high hopes, you know, and then, and then those, unfortunately for many folks came crashing down a bit. Uh, and so the disappointment, the frustration, um, those are real. So um, that was an interesting point of, of the, I didn't know that like the voting, the voting optionality and like voting right going to the voting obligation. I think it's a good segue into, and thanks by the way, Nicole, for kind of painting that whole picture. It, it's a fascinating, it's such a, such a fascinating, I mean, history, it's only the last couple of years, but it's, um, I think there's a lot of learnings in there, lot, lots of experiments as well, right? Um, so, um, but I wanted to bring us back to the inequalities that you touched on, because that is, that seems to me like an important point, like going from a voting right to a voting obligation. Um, and my natural instincts would say that as a consequence, you know, people who have been disenfranchised or have previously been left out of the, the, the political debate or, or wouldn't show up simply at the ballot box. Now it's about how do we engage them? How do we kind of 
those are probably the part of the audience that politically are, are, are really um, yeah, delicate and, and important to, to win their hearts and their votes, right? I would say yes, but I, I want to like add a little asterisk to that, which I think is really, really, really important in today's day and age, which is how do we, instead of had just how do we engage them, it's how do we engage people well? Because there's a not a huge, in my view, there's not a huge uh, distance between um, populism and citizen engagement if we're not careful. Um, engagement without the information that you need, without good design of those mechanisms, is asking folks who are not in a position to understand what you're even asking them to make a decision that will sometimes have huge impacts on their lives for decades to come. And that's not fair. That's not fair. And so when when we're talking about um, moving to something like, like a required voting system, um, what, what concerns me is where is the civic education to accompany that shift? Because we moved from a system in which people who tended to be uh, more up on these issues, who tended to, you know, this is not a blanket statement by any means, but who tended to uh, engage themselves a little bit more, educate themselves a little bit more, were the ones who went out, went out to vote. And the people who, who didn't, you know, they're the folks who went, oh, I, don't, I don't really know, I don't necessarily care all that much, I don't see the relevance for me. And now we're telling everybody, everybody, you must go, you must vote. But where is the sort of the, the civic duty and the civic responsibility that we have as institutions, as countries, as society, as municipalities to, to help people have the tools that they need to make the decisions that they actually want to make? You know, it, it breaks my heart a little bit when I hear about things like Brexit, for example, or the plebiscite that, the, that happened, um, the exit plebiscite. What I think is the worst outcome is when you hear people say, oh, I didn't really know what I was voting for. I didn't think it would lead to this. And that is the thing that we have a huge responsibility around. Mm -hmm. Is this something you're working on at a local level at a city? For sure. Um, I think that's an ongoing challenge uh, for, for all folks working in community engagement these days. Um, but it's certainly something that's uh, quite present for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I mean, because we've been talking a lot about like the national context here. Um, do you feel that your work at city level is very much linked to like the bigger, you know, like democratic culture, what's happening at that national level? And, and I mean, just the thing that we're talking about here, civic education is something you participate in multiple democracies, right? Your local community, regional level, national level, um, are all those things intertwined and are you also like engaging the community working with the community on matters that are happening at different levels i mean we're, we're definitely at you know at the municipality level we definitely experience a sort of a smaller version of the larger microcosm of, of the political and social context there's no question um in in the sense of you know what that looks like for our citizen engagement um I think there's a really deep responsibility that we have and that we you know, do our best to try and acknowledge and, and move forward with around the education piece when we're creating opportunities for citizen engagement. So, you know, there's there are moments and part of our work is, uh, you know, accompanying um, in this case, you know, the administration of, of our mayor, uh, Macarena Ribamonte, in her administration of, of the city, you know, and, and advising uh, on when citizen engagement is, is appropriate, 
when maybe not so much and when it is you know what are the conditions that we have to to meet to be able to actually have a space that is meaningful and fair to the citizens of the city to be able to participate well not just participate and, and do you have any any good examples nicole of civic education programs or initiatives that you've launched i think today more than education programs what we what we try to do is in the specific sort of uh, participatory processes that we open that there is the education kind of built into that the information that somebody needs to be able to participate in that citizen or sorry um civic engagement as a as a whole is something that I think we're still very much in debt uh, at a national level, at a uh, at a more regional level. It's something that um, is not a huge focus in in our education system. Um, but does that imply for you that your focus right now in your work is more on the educational part and the informational part of of, of community engagement more than the participation itself? No, it's it's oriented more towards the participation itself, um, actually being able to be a part of this decision making that's happening. But the big, you know, the education piece comes in and comes in with the and you have the information to, to be able to participate in that way. Let's also talk a little more about like the social realities that you, that you touched on, like the huge inequalities. I think there's, there's a little more to, to, to tell there. Um, how does that impact your work in terms of like how do you build equitable engagement and work with all those different groups and given all those inequalities, how do you do that in an equitable way? Some of the key pieces here are that the, the repercussions of that inequality um, come into all, every element of what we do. So, you know, depending on where you were educated, you know, what schools that you went to, you have different levels of, of um, exposure to different issues in the country, right? And you have different access to conversations that are deeply political. And of course, you also have different access to spaces of power where decisions are being made, you know, in terms of how it, how much of this stuff is sort of is, is uh, crossing your path in the first place. Obviously, inequality also leads to differences in terms of access in the sense of being able to physically go places in, in terms of being able to access information through different uh, channels and all of the different social patterns that that leads to. And so um, it is it is a a deep element uh, that affects everything, that, every element of our work, for sure. Yeah, I wanted to pick in on that and, 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 and just follow up by, you know, we've had a chance already to work a little bit together on online participation, which talking about access, talking about access to, to you know, like uh, the internet, uh, broadband and so on. It's, I imagine, already like first important condition and then might not always be present. We, funny enough, in Chile, that's not as, as strong a pattern as you might find in other places in the world. Chile is one of the countries with actually the cheapest access to, to telecoms, uh, like to data and things like that. Yeah, yeah. when I, I go home to visit my folks in Canada, uh, it's, uh, it, it's painful <laughs> to see their cell phone bills, I'll tell you that. Or, or let, let, let's dig a bit, if that's okay, let's dig a bit deeper into like just then online participation. Let's, let's focus um, on, on that online side of, of participation. Um, and, you know, I started, uh, I talked about, I would be eager to explore some of those key differences. You as a Canadian, you're able to compare a little bit. What do you see as, as key differences? I think the overall political culture, you've really kind of given us a good overview there. So I think, um, I can at least see the differences and the inequalities and all the things we talked about, but when it comes to online engagement, how does that, how do the rules of the game change? 
Well, engagement is different, right? We're in a different context than than a European country, than a North American country. Um, interestingly, like you know, the availability of relatively cheap uh, mobile data means that people are on their phones, right? Phones are a really, really, really key uh, element of connectivity in this country. You know, much uh, much more than computers, for example. Uh, people use WhatsApp way more than they'll use their email in general. Um, and so that means that we have to, if we want to talk about good participation and, and good citizen engagement, we have to shift towards the context and the local realities, right? That means that we're not sending necessarily our information only to an, in, to a, to an email and assuming that they're going to get it that way. We're working a lot through text as if we can, um, through WhatsApp messaging, you know, we're sending graphics and videos that way um, and not relying uh, especially on that kind of uh, online um, outreach that you might sort of see in North American or European contexts. You as a government, you're using leveraging WhatsApp to send direct messages to constituents, to community members. In some in some cases, yeah, that's something that we're working on to be able to, to expand that reach. Um, but I was going to couple that with a second thing, which I think is really critical and, and I see as a big difference um, if I look at Canadian contexts, which is that um, the territorial piece, the the being boots in uh, on the ground is critical for us, and that's an element that we cannot forget because the the element of of being in contact with community organizations, of physically being in the different parts of the city, um, there are people who you know who spend for sure their days in in their local neighborhoods, and they're not they're not physically reaching other parts of the city, and so. Um, information, they're getting most of their information from their WhatsApp groups with their family members and friends and from, you know, the, when they go to the local uh, sort of corner store, you know, if there's a poster up there from the the neighborhood group, for example, the neighborhood house, uh, the Junta de Vecinos. Um, and so the the information transfer in that sense is is often very local. And one of the challenges that we have, the beautiful challenges that we have as the municipality is to be present um, in in a in a context where, you know, to, to give a bit of that background, Viña del Mar is a city that's hilly. Um, and so there's sort of a, a valley-ish in the center, which is the, the sort of center of the city. And then there's all these different hills around. And each of those different hills as a different sector of the city has its own identity um, and own, re own realities. And people identify first and foremost, uh, by and large, with those local neighborhoods, not with the city, not with Viña necessarily. And so there we have to be there in the hills, in the cerros, as, as people talk about it, um, to be able to actually have uh, engagement, particularly with the folks who are not super connected to the to the plan area, the center of, of the city, and are not connected to us on a social media, for example. When you say we, is that your team, is that the government directly, or is that any community-based organizations that you work with? Uh, we, we, in the sense of my team and the municipality in, in general, yeah. But the community organizations are the ones who are grouping together people, bringing people together in, in the, their local contexts, right, in their neighborhoods. And so for us, at working with those organizations, um, those different organizations, whether they're organizations that are built around an you know, interest group, around uh, you know, a theater group, or whether they are your local neighborhood group, um, all of these are uh, sort of hot points for us to get out information and to receive back information around, you know, the kinds of things that they want to see in their city. Yeah. All right. Going out in the neighborhoods, really being in the field and, and you know, in the neighborhoods, boots on the ground. Um, does that blend with, with online or do you see that as two separate worlds? 
Um, both, in a sense. Uh, I think that they are, they are different tools that reach different folks in the sense that I can go out and talk to somebody on the street and, and there's a relatively low barrier for the majority of folks. Uh, digital tools, obviously, there are certain demographics that are much more comfortable with using those tools than others. But being there in the street is, is I can't get as much bang for the buck as, you know, with something that's digital. I, I have a team that's of limited size with a certain number of hours um, and we can't be physically present everywhere. So, you know, I think this combination for us um, is, you know, we re recently launched our, our digital uh, platform, which you well know, um, a couple months ago. Uh, gosh, time flies. And having this opportunity to have a really strong uh, tool to be able to combine the in-person with the, the digital is, is so far um, presenting itself as a really great strategy for us to offer different ways to engage. What are some of the projects that you're currently working on, Nicole? We have a huge range of, of projects. I think one of the one of the differences uh, between our team here and some of the teams that I've seen, you know, in the Canadian context and, and in another context, is that the mayor, when she came into um, into office about two years ago, she came into office with one of her uh, sort of platform pieces being citizen engagement as a general approach. It's not just, for example, for the development of public spaces and infrastructure projects, which is where I see it most heavily applied in, in the Northern Hemisphere, right? We're building a plaza, we're building a road, we're building a, uh, whatever it may be, civic center. Um, but beyond the urbanism piece and the planning piece, it's in, sort of injected, as it were, into uh, almost all of the different departments of, of the municipality at this point. So, you know, we're running in, in cultures, we're running... Uh, co-design processes to develop a, you know, festi cultural festival. We're working in, obviously, in um, the urban planning uh, sort of sector there and building, you know, designing plazas and things like that. Yes, for sure. And, you know, and we're also in other different, th so there's a, a real richness of the way in which we can use citizen engagement that goes far, far, far beyond just your sort of consultation around do you like the building design that we've put together? Mm -hmm. But that implies that you open up the definition of like community engagement. It's not strictly speaking only about participation in a strict sense of, you know, political participation, but it's also about being part or taking part in, in community events, uh, festivals you were just talking about. It's, I mean, we're, the basis of this is, is um, participatory democracy, right? The idea that we open the doors of institutions and that there's a power sharing process that happens. Whereas an institution, we are saying, okay, citizenry, you're invited to participate in this process in this way and to help us to make decisions about these things, you know, about this policy, or about this program, about whatever it may be. So you get quite a wide variety. But to kind of go back to your question about different examples, um, one of my favorite ones, which is, you know, more of your kind of classic uh, physical space uh, concepts, but um, has to do with uh, the development of a master plan uh, for cycle lanes in the center of the city. And so we had often our processes are multiple spaces um, because it allows us to build knowledge, going back to the education piece, right? It allows us different, uh, a bit more time to be able to generate and move through a process of, um, of decision making. And so we had a series of, I think it was three, three different workshops. So in the case of the cycle lanes, um, you know, we had a series of about three spaces. 
where we invited people for to come in and to and this was critical to be able to interact and sit down and chat with the engineers who have the more technical knowledge around well you can't put a bike lane there exactly because this or this is a consideration around cost because you know if you would do it this way then we have to move the posts there and we have to change this light and this kind of thing which are you know details that we don't we don't know and we don't have to know as, as sort of general citizens. So having uh, moments of being able to sit down and, and talk about what it means to build cycle lanes in the city and you know what the standards are and all that kind of thing. Um, people sat down in these three spaces to be able to, as an end goal, create a master plan of the different cycle lanes that we wanted to build in the center of the city. And so we sat down with the engineers and, and we went through a, a process of first identifying opportunities, right? Where would people like to have the cycle lanes? That went back to our engineers and they essentially did a process of, of sort of street lighting it, where the you know, red, yellow, green type of approach where uh, based on the cost and ease uh, of, of creating the process or a project, um, they ranked the different options that people had identified in the first space. They went back in the second space and said, okay, these are the realities, right? If we wanna build these projects, each of these different options that, that we identified in the first space, these are the ones that are costly and therefore also much more uncertain if we'd be able to actually implement them in the, in the short term, medium term, or even long term. They also mean longer term uh, processes, generally speaking, like or projects, um, versus like the greens, which were relatively easy, low cost, uh, a small amount of infrastructural change that would be required. And so we laid the information, the realities on the table and said, okay, now we have to prioritize. And as users of these space spaces, um, you know, what knowing this information, what would you prioritize? Knowing that if you put a red, for example, it's much less likely that it would actually happen, but maybe it's more important to you. And so it was really interesting to see what came out of it. And in, in converse, a conversation with our engineers afterwards, they sort of said, you know, I never would have prioritized a couple of the reds that came out prioritized as a result of the process because uh you know the likelihood of them they're much they're much more complicated projects the 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 time frames that we're talking about are a lot longer but the user said i get that i understand but i'm still going to tell you that this needs to be prioritized because it's a major connecting route for example to the nearby city and we'll also throw in some of the greens, you know, to, to mix it in and create a good network, for example. And so the results were really, um, were really quite detailed and oriented in the realities. So it was such a good project, mainly because of the quality of the inputs or also the quantity and, and you know, like the number of people you managed to engage? I would say it's, it's the quality, right? The, the um, degree to which it responded to a combination of need actual need that exists today and the ways that we as users are, are in the spaces I mean, as, mm -hmm. as cyclists in the city or as future cyclists in the city right. um, what do we need to be able to actually start to use the bike more connectivity is key we need to be able to move one city to the other you know things like this so the quality of the information and the, the so how realistic it is i think is what was one of the really neat elements and also um in that process, which is something that we've replicated in a number of other processes since then, is that we've been one of the end products for us uh, is an action plan. Um, and so it's not just the identification of what people would like, but uh, part of our work is to identify and link within the municipality 
what is realistic and what is feasible and what people want and find that middle point and say, okay, in the short term, we're going to advance in this, these lines of, of work, medium term, long term, these are the things that we're going to try and advance um, to reach our end goal. Okay, wonderful example. I would like to, to close off just by, you know, um, talking about probably one of the most important um, purposes, goals of community engagement, which is about building trust. Again, going back to the history of like a very complicated history of political participation uh, in which trust to a certain extent, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine has been eroded. Um, how have you seen that citizen participation can be used in your community in Vinay del Mar? Um, how can it be used as a tool to rebuild that trust? Yeah, I, I mean, it has so much potential for that, particularly in context, you know, I can predict to Canadian context, for example, where um, citizen engagement has been for a longer period of time part of our the sort of the structures of local government, but it has already reached a point in many uh, in many situations where there's a lot of um, disappointment in how those processes resulted. Here we have a relatively clean slate, um, and so whilst there is pretty high distrust of institutions in general. There isn't necessarily a specific distrust around citizen engagement processes <laughs> that we're that we're starting from. Um, trust building comes with with vulnerability. If you and I as friends or you and I as as family members want to build trust, there is a vulnerability piece that has to be there, and it's no different at the institutional level. We have to, as institutions, take risks. Um, we have to open the door to greater levels of participation, and that is messy. It takes more time. It is more chaotic, <laughs> um, but that's also how we show that we are willing to be to, to share, and that comes down to also you know reciprocity. We have to be able to also um, try and counter the extractivism of, of traditional citizen engagement moments, where all we're doing as institutions or sometimes as companies, you know, is asking. I want to take. I want to take your information. I would like you to give me your opinions. What we try and do with you know different different levels of success depending on the project, but um, is to come at it from a view that this is an exchange, um, and we are asking for people's opinions, and we have a responsibility as an institution for two things: one, to give them something in return. So that can be a combination of information and empowerment through that information, and that can even be something as simple as like having a good time. Um, you know, we had a, a beautiful process, for example, that was a folk for, for older folks in the, in the community recently. And one of the things that we gave back was, uh, yes, a moment of workshopping, but also a social space and a hangout and live band to come and dance, you know, which is something that, that people are lacking, those kind of social spaces. And so what are we giving back as institutions in exchange for the information and opinions that we're asking for from, from folks? And the second thing that I think is really, really critical are into uh, justice and then liberation. And the difference between something like equity and justice is that we're not just saying, well, you have an equal, or a, an equal opportunity to be able to participate. We're saying, I have a responsibility as institutions to reduce the barriers and increase the likelihood and, and, and accessibility uh, of these processes to you. And so that looks for us like trying to experiment a lot with sort of pop-ups in spaces where people are instead of asking them to in their busy lives, where they, you know, where the money can be tight, where they have to go home to care for children after a long day at work. 
to try and meet them where they are so that um, it's not an extra cost that they're incurring to be part of our, our processes. What a fascinating idea or the way they put it, like it's vulnerable government, how government can be vulnerable and thinking about, you know, things such as, yeah, as you just said, meeting people where they are, thinking about justice, uh, thinking about the reciprocity out of the exchange. Um, I don't know, that's something I'm definitely going to take away. Is there anything, any topics that we didn't touch on yet that you still want to discuss? Well, there's a lot of things, but I, I guess um, two pieces I think that come to mind that are really critical as well uh, in our work and that, you know, are, are sticky challenges always uh, is around managing expectations. Like what talking about vulnerability, what, you know, again, going back to personal relationships, the healthiest personal, personal relationships are ones where uh, expectations and limits are also clearly stated. And that's no different here again. You know, we have to be clear about what our invites are to people. We're inviting you to step into this process where this is the degree of power that you would have. These are the decisions where you that you will be able to affect. And these are the things that are off the table. Um, being really clear about that, um, particularly, you know, when we're working alongside community organizations where their, their own reputations, their own sort of channels of uh, connection with the community are also at play and, and sometimes at risk if we as institutions don't handle it well. Um, and I guess the, the last thing that I put on the table is um, sometimes I think we take citizen engagement way too seriously uh, in the sense that not in the responsibility piece, because I think it's a really deep responsibility that we have and we have to take it as such, but in the sense of the tone, the way that we do it. Um, we, I think we need to have fun with citizen engagement. And part of that is that kind of risk-taking and vulnerability, right? We don't have to be serious always as institutions. When people go out and they have a good time, they're more likely, likely to come back and they go away with more. So why as adults do we stop playing? Why do we stop inviting you know, our, our citizens into spaces where they laugh, where they have fun, where they can giggle and you know and and build with their hands and move their bodies sometimes um i think that there's a lot of opportunity for us to deepen the degree of engagement widen the creativity of the the opportunities and the invitations that we're expressing to people but to be really really clear and vulnerable as we're doing it i sense a lot of optimism i love that like um a lot of optimism coming from you on like widening creativity having fun while participating in democracy <laughs> I really love this and, and also being very much people, people driven. I mean, of course we're thinking about community driven, but people driven as in like as government yeah. and someone working government. Um, I feel that very much the energy coming from you that you care about that relationship with community members. And, and that's, I think that's also a beautiful thought that government can have personal relationships, you know, with, uh, instead of, uh, you know, the exactly. antidote is obviously thinking in a neoliberal sphere of, uh, of, of your community as clients or something. Um, but that you can have genuine relationships. That's exactly it. Um, yeah. We're going to end here, Nicole. Thank you so much for the conversation. I would like to ask you a last question as we wrap up this conversation. What would be your one single piece of advice sure. that you, um, let's put it like this, that you, that you wished you, you knew before you started on this whole citizen participation journey? I think we sometimes uh, get really wrapped up in the complexity of the degree, you know, how big of the issue is that we're trying to change. 
where we get wrapped up in how, uh, you know, fancy or detailed we want the space to be. Uh, so from, from large to small, we can get really wrapped up in, in complexity. And there's no doubt that human societies are complex and the way that we interact uh, leads to complexity. And in simplicity, there's a lot of accessibility. Um, there's a lot in the sense of being able to uh, reduce barriers. There's a lot of accessibility in the sense that people can feel much more comfortable. Um, and there's a lot of value in being able to get to the heart of something and, and removing all the bells and whistles. So I think over time, uh, I have um, invested a lot in planning in, of spaces and processes, and that will continue to be the case. But I think as a team, you know, we are striving more and more to have multiple simpler ways to participate in things that are really meaningful to people based on where they are and what what's important to them right now. A couple of episodes ago, we had um, rural camps from uh, city of Antwerp um, on the podcast and, and he's doing youth engagement in particular. And he said, actually, you know, all planners, they should always, you always, should always remind them, try to explain this to a 10 year old and you're always getting better results, even if you're presenting it to a 40 year old, you know? Well, and, and why not involve the 10 year olds too? It's, you know, it's their future, it's their city. Thank you so much, Nicole, yeah. for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And um, until next time. Thank you for joining us on our journey towards a democratic future. Subscribe to the podcast to stay connected. Next month, we'll be back with another trailblazer. And remember, democracy is a journey. It's not just a destination. Stay curious, engaged, and active in your local democracy. Until next time.